0: again, and welcome to Marketing Sweats by Samantha. Today, we have a super compelling speaker, brand consultant and agency owner, Chris Neeland. I met Chris at a conference and found him to be a pretty inventive guy. With a background working for some major brands like John Deere and Home Depot, Chris developed his philosophies that led him on a defined path to support cult brands, ultimately leaving the holding company agencies and going out on his own, opening an agency he calls Cult Collective out of Calgary, Canada. His book, fix, break the addictions that are killing brands, helps break down some of the pitfalls brands fall into. He argues that in order to build a cult brand, the actual strategies for getting there might look a little different than you may think. I appreciate Chris because he's tapped into supporting some of the biggest challenges we face currently as marketers. For example, he's working to redefine how his once in-person event for Cult Collective can migrate online. And he's helping marketers, even like Samantha, source talent through his website, communo.com. Chris and I had a great energy on this call, and I can't wait to share the conversation with you. Well, Chris, it's so great to see you again. After meeting you with the Mirren Conference in Chicago, I have been following your work. I'd love for you to start by giving our audience a little bit more about your professional journey. Tell us where you started and where you are today.
1: For as long as I can remember thinking about what I would do when I grew up, I've always gravitated towards marketing or advertising. My father was a marketer and his job seemed glamorous. He'd come back from trade shows with tchotchkes and stress (laughs) balls and (laughs) keychains. And uh, And that's the best stuff ever for kids. When I reflect on it now, what I really remember was that my dad liked his job. He liked going to work. It wasn't one of these things where dads would go to happy hour or bowling leagues or whatever after work to find their their purpose or their their people or their release. And what I really remember was just thinking, if I'm going to be doing something. 40, 50, 60 hours a week. I might as well really love what I do. And marketing always felt like it was interesting people doing interesting things in a blend of art and science and creativity and math. And I just liked that. And so through high school and through college and through graduate school, I just kept getting more and more refined, understanding where my place was. I initially thought I was going to be a copywriter until I learned what copywriters make (laughs) as a living. I didn't want to be a starving artist, but my team still rolls their eyes because I'm a bit of a closet copywriter. So then I just began an exploration of do I want to go to big companies? I remember when I left grad school in 99, my objective was to work for the biggest most powerful brand that would hire me. It was right around the turn of the century. So there was a lot of articles about the you know, the most powerful companies of the past 100 years, of the, basically of the, of the 1900s. And I think Coca-Cola was number one. I remember Apple. It was interesting. Apple wasn't on the list. IBM was on the list. I think Mercedes-Benz was on the list, but one of them was John Deere. John Deere came recruiting at our school in Chicago, and I jumped at that. And I think the reason why I got the job, there was about 100 of us in our graduating class. It was a very niche MBA through a, a really great program at Northwestern University in Chicago, but there wasn't a lot of graduates. And it was right before the dot-com bubble burst. So it was in the glory days of companies really whining and dining you and big, signing bonuses and so I felt like a rock star. But there was <laughs> only four people that went to John Deere to interview. So I figured even if I screw this up, I got a twenty five percent chance. It wasn't sure. like Yeah, most people wanted to go to Silicon Valley or New York and John Deere was in Raleigh, North Carolina, which they thought felt like the sticks. I had a young child at the time. We thought what a great place to raise sure. a family. That kind of started the journey of John Deere and then John Deere turned into Home Depot, which was at the time the retail Darling, I mean, I think Home Depot is building a store a day. When I interviewed at Home Depot, my would-be boss said, "How much marketing budget do you have at John Deere?" And I, with great pride, said, "We spend seven million dollars a year." This was a very niche part of CRM and e-commerce marketing. She goes, "What if I gave you seventy million
0: dollars?" Oh my budget? goodness!
1: I couldn't wrap my head around it. I was like, $70 million, You can do anything for seventy million dollars." Obviously, that wasn't my pay. That was the budget that we had. Home Depot was spending a, almost a billion dollars a year. That's crazy. So that was, a, you know, kind of a rounding error—seven yeah. percent of their entire marketing spend. But I felt like a kid in the candy store and did all sorts of stupid things. I think my claim to fame was I painted the home page of Yahoo orange one time. It was a million dollars for one day. They call them page altering events. Yahoo was the number one search engine at the time and they only sold one of these a quarter because it, it would piss people off. Imagine going to Yahoo to check sure. your email or to read the news and a paintbrush comes out and covers right. the whole thing orange. And when you go to click it off, it takes you to the Home Depot website. So, yeah. I think we had like 800,000 or 8 million visits to our website that day and 8,000 people stayed. So it was like wow. 99.9% of the people were like, screw you, homie. I'm going back to my place. And then I went to big agencies and Then I went to small agencies, and then I decided to start my own agency. So I've had a nice, over the past 25 years, kind of know what it's like to be client-side, what it's like to be agency-side. Now I know what it's like to be an entrepreneur.
0: You may not know this about us, Chris. We work for Caterpillar. We're located in Peoria, Illinois. So understanding the power of John Deere and orange for Home Depot versus Big Yellow speaks to my heart. Tell me more about what it was like to start brand side, because so many of the people I speak to start agency side and decide to move client side, and you've had the opposite experience.
1: I wasn't intentional when I did it. I actually never thought about working for an agency until I realized that culturally, I didn't fit well within big, large corporations. People told me as such, and it'd be (laughs) stupid things. I I tend to be a pretty happy, obnoxious guy, whistling in the elevators, (laughs) making jokes. I remember when I was at Home Depot, we worked with a big agency, DDB, out of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I would always go to them for our meetings. They were grateful, but they're like, listen, you're the client. We'll fly to you. And I was like, no, I like hanging out at your place better. Absolutely. It feels more like home than than my place. When I went to John Deere, I just considered it a second MBA. Like my goal was not about how much money are they going to pay me or what's my job going to be. It's like I need to learn how John Deere became one of the 10 most powerful brands of the past hundred years, how much of it was substantive, how much of it was just sizzle and artificial sweetener and What I learned is that there's an origin story there, particularly when it comes to helping farmers get through the Great Depression. To this day, it's John Deere helped save the family farm kind of an idea. That was part of it. And they treat it with such sacredness. Nobody that runs the John Deere brand takes ownership for it. They assume stewardship of it. So the brand is greater than any one personality or any one ego. So there was a lot of reverence to these standards and to these expectations. So it was very easy just to say that doesn't feel like us or that's not the John Deere way because those rules have been codified over decades. So I really enjoyed from a marketing perspective what it means to be a brand. And then from a client perspective, I learned first how I liked to be serviced. I think agency people, if you just go agency first, have no appreciation for the pressures that their clients face. They just kind of want to be like, why aren't we doing cool ideas? They don't sure. understand their, the risk, the culture, the budgetary, the integration, like all the things that have to go around it. Having a great idea is only 49% of the equation. Getting your client to be able to do it is 51%. I and mean, then that requires lots of things. How do you socialize those ideas and how do you assume responsibility? You're burdening your client if you're filling their heads with really cool ideas without any support on how to bring those ideas to life in their culture.
0: We always say our job is to get our clients a promotion and that requires selling up and out and not just delivering an idea but the entire communication plan around it. little bit about your time at Omnicom. What is a relationship marketing agency for those people who don't know? And, and what did you learn about the digital space?
1: Omnicom was much like any of the big holding companies. They had these little verticals. And mm-hmm. so the popular kids that sat at the cool kid lunch table worked for their big creative agencies. The Critical Mass was their flagship digital agency. And then Rap Collins, which got rebranded to Rap while I was there, was really sort of their CRM, loyalty marketing, direct mail agency. Actually, it probably started, it did, did start as their Stan Rap, who started that agency, was kind of a direct mail expert. So it had elements of database marketing and analytics. I used to joke that direct marketing is the fanny pack of the advertising community. It's (laughs) super effective and functional, but there's no sex appeal whatsoever to it. Where it got really tricky while I was there. So I was there from 2005 to 2010, was as digital came online and as social came online and as mobile came online, Omnicom wasn't sure. Is that critical mass work? If it was an e-commerce website, it was very clean. Of course, that goes to critical mass. But if it's an email marketing campaign, is that digital or is that direct marketing? Or if it's social media, so some of the newer disciplines... Even things like keyword advertising, it didn't have clean homes within Omnicom. And I thought that they did a very poor job. I think Omnicom was explained to me at one point, don't ever go to Omnicom to expect them to settle a dispute. They really don't care who wins as long as it's one of their kids that's in the fight.
0: Interesting. right? And so
1: as I moved up the ranks at Omnicom, I really struggled. I formed the opinion that once an agency becomes public, they care more about their own stakeholders than they do their clients. And they kind of have to. I would be in many a meeting where we would have to go sell services because the mothership needed those services sold, not because the clients needed to buy them. I really had an integrity issue with that. And so Mm. it eventually led to me looking for another job, which is how I ended up coming up here to Canada. I don't have a problem with the talent within Omnicom holding agencies. I just have a problem with the operating model and the philosophy of big holding companies.
0: Such an interesting paradigm shift going from a world of some of the world's biggest brands to then sort of digital e-com, you know, CRM stuff. Talk a little bit about how that informed your vision for Cult. I came up in the era of branding and it's always going to be core to my love and why I do what I do. But the job has changed, right? We are talking now about customer experience and digital delivery. How do you integrate all of that within Cult?
1: I'm frequently accused of being anti-advertising, which I'm not, but I don't mind being provocative. I am anti the reckless overuse of mass media and markdowns to try to create market demand or brand relevance. I think that we have found a hammer to where now every problem looks like a nail and people just are are too quick to assume a creative campaign or a paid media solution is going to fix that. The real reality is I've had a chip on my shoulder since 2000 when I entered the job force, because whether it was at John Deere, where we were starting an e-commerce discipline and nobody really understood the role of web, Websites or over the course of 20 years, I've always kind of been more on the side of CRM or digital. And we had to steal money from the established mass channels in order to get the funding for that. It wasn't always net new dollars. It was, okay, here's what we have, whatever, three, five, eight percent of our revenues are going to go to marketing. So if those were currently being spent on retail flyers or television commercials or radio or even a sales team, Then we always, I mean, for 20 something years now, I've had to kind of defend, why should you give me some of that money? Because is mine going to be more targeted? Is mine going to be more measurable? Is mine going to be more effective? And so I do have a bit of a chip on my shoulder in that regard that the stuff that I believed in didn't have merits on its own. It always was being in compared to something else. And that something else I thought was pretty loose. It never had strong attribution. It just, Uh, what it had was legacy. uh, What it had was sex appeal because uh, people love to see themselves on Monday night football. They love to hear themselves on the radio when they're driving into work. And again, creativity is awesome. Creativity is fun. Two years ago was the first time digital spend outpaced or surpassed traditional spend in terms of total paid media outlay. The problem is, is that within that digital spend, it's either Facebook, Google, or programmatic ad buying. So that that's well over half of what that digital spend is, which I think has some fundamental flaws with it. So I think that marketers... Need to be much more critical and their service providers need to stop being channel experts because the problem is when you get a Facebook agency or a Google agency, it's all they do is try to optimize that channel as opposed to if you're really customer experts, you would be a little bit less precious about what the channel was. You right. even more about what's their experience. And that might mean the call center. That might mean the retail environment. That might mean a post-purchase postcard or email. You'd think more holistically, but I've, I've been in many a meetings where the marketing team comes in and every one of them is asking for more money for their particular channel. And they're all taking credit for the same 5% sales lift that happened. When did we become about masters of channels? We should have been masters of, of customer experience.
0: You mentioned your dad having a huge influence on your life, and you are a big personality. You walked right up to me the first time I met you and asked me a bunch of curiosity questions. At what point in your career did you stop and say, you know what, there's things that I believe in in the world, and I'm going to go out and build my own business around these principles. What is it that makes you you, Chris?
1: I am not a natural entrepreneur. I always tell people, you should only be an entrepreneur if one of two things exists. One, if you're completely unemployable. And that's my business partner. I mean, he would never get a real job. He he doesn't comply. He doesn't know how to hold his tongue. He doesn't know how to just kind of play the game. Sure. And not because he's arrogant. It's just because he's just wired to, to question everything. It's actually a major flaw in the educational system. If you go way back, not to get too philosophical, but that being, when they needed to get kids out of the farms and into the factories, they established a, a system that would enforce... And identify compliance and who can can sit still and, and learn and memorize the material and take the tests. If you sucked at school, it's not that you're bad or dumb. It's that you just don't thrive within a structure and therefore you should go create a structure you can thrive in. The second reason you should be an entrepreneur is if there's something that you're so passionate about that is being underserved, that there's an injustice in the world that only I can go and And solve. If somebody else is solving it, just join their crusade because it's going to be easier. I was looking at this reckless overuse. It was really just way too many clients calling upon us to solve a problem, hoping that we could fix it with lipstick as opposed Mm -hmm. to, no, there's a fundamental problem here and a prettier campaign. And it's what I hate about the cons awards. It's just the sell. I'd love the cons if you just called it what it was. It's just celebrate creativity. But when you start calling it advertising, it has to be art with a business objective and it has to be art or creativity that solves a bigger problem. And if you remove the effectiveness or the results from that, and you're just celebrating the funness of the idea, then I think it's unethical. I think that you have to be able to connect those two dots. And I just saw our industry being woefully distracted by make the logo bigger, make it more blue, make it funnier, make it more emotional. It's like, guys, you're missing the product sucks. It's what I love about one of my favorite campaigns of the past decade was the Domino's Pizza turnaround campaign. The urban legend around it was... They had one last-ditch effort to save the business. Papa John's was kicking their butt. They went and hired the sexiest, best ad agency they could find, which at the time was Crispin Porter out of Boulder, and said, save our business. And the rumor is that Alex Budesky gave them half of the money back and said, make better pizza. I mean, think about the courage, but I mean, as well as he could have taken that money, he could have made a fortune on that, but he realized that if your pizza, they, they started recording people in focus groups and they were like, I'd rather eat the box that it came in with ketchup than the pizza that's inside. Advertising can't fix that. But we have an entire industrial complex of advertisers or worse marketers who are only focused on promotion. Or on storytelling. They're not focused on product development. They're not focused on distribution. They're not focused on the post-purchase experience. In fact, they're not only not focused on it when we talk to them about it, they're like, that's not my job. It's like, well, I thought your job was to grow profitability or to increase your relevance. And they're like, yeah, but you no, know, my job is to spend this media budget. And it's like, ah, well, then you're never gonna fix you can, you know, it's band-aids. I I call it painkillers in my book. I use the metaphor of why do you take a painkiller? it's because something hurts. So I appreciate that an aspirin or morphine or whatever can can make the pain go away, but it does zero to actually fix the problem. The minute that wears off, you're still in pain. So then you get into these addictive behaviors of I need to take more and more. And then the law of diminishing returns kicks in and it takes even more to get the same effect. It's like, who's actually just stopping to reset the bone or to remove the cavity or to do something that's much harder. I don't know why marketing agencies or ad agencies haven't been That's why they're losing, frankly, today to consultancies is because consultancies are actually going in saying, well, you could continue to overdose on morphine, but why don't you just actually get some surgery, and take out the the gallbladder or whatever it might be.
0: I find brand agencies like ourselves are moving into that customer experience space. But the trend that I haven't seen as much as what you're talking about is fix the product. I talked to another brand side marketer this week, and she has product innovation within her team. And I think that's a trend we're going to keep seeing more of is that we don't just manage marketing campaigns. We actually manage the product line managers.
1: I agree with you. It's the exception, not the rule. It's one of the reasons why we wrote the book. And it's why we started this event that we do every year called The Gathering, because when we find it... It is not only so unique, but it's so desirable. The number one thing that we hear when people leave the gathering where we parade onto the stage 40 of the most iconic brands on the planet is, oh, I wish I could work there. I wish my boss would let me do that. I wish our culture would allow us to do that because there's an instant recognition. that, Oh, yeah, that's better. Somehow I've like, settled into accepting the fact that that's the exception, not the rule. And we're like, why Why does it have to be? Yeah. remember we, we put Harley Davidson on stage and he was talking about their business and their undeniable iconic brand. And he says, we spend 85% of our budget on retention, mm. not on acquisition. And there's yeah. an audible gasp in the room. And he says, you know, if you want to be like, who wants to be like Harley Davidson? Everybody raises their hand. Who's willing to do what Harley Davidson's doing? Everybody's hand goes down. I get it. Human nature is that way. I, I'm that way. I'll see somebody play the piano and I'll like, I wish I could do that. It's like, well, I could. I'd set to practice eight hours a day.
0: So right. It's I'm hard. just not
1: willing to do the things that are required to enjoy the
0: benefit. Right. Well, let's talk about cult. Did the book come first? Did the business come first? Or did they happen simultaneously because you had this passion to go out in the world and do what you believed in?
1: The really book most certainly did not come first. Like, I'm not an <laughs> author at writing that book. I did that kicking and screaming. Really, I'd say it went the business, the event, the gathering, then the book. Because okay. the business was, we need to, enough is enough. We're tired of pretending like... The stuff that we're doing matters. We want to be more substantive. And we learned that calling ourselves an ad agency did not earn us a seat at the big boy table. People at the big boy table or big girl table were making decisions and then giving us a brief to execute some small part of it. And so we just said, now with the Hamilton reference, if I want to be in the room where it happens, I can't call myself an advertiser. I've got to call myself a strategist or a marketer or a consultant. It was substantive. It wasn't just a new name change. we fired our production team. We fired our media team. We really just became about problem solving, and that's a different tangent. That's where Camino came from, is that we still needed production and media. So how do we have access to that talent? But if there, it's kind of the idea if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, we couldn't look or smell or sound anything like an ad agency in order to earn that credibility to be at the table. So we became an engagement firm. And nobody knew what that was, and we loved that, because within that ambiguity, we could kind of create the rules of engagement. And then our problem was we only had two case studies. It wasn't that we had had decades of experience working on the most cult-like brands in the world. So we decided that we had to research them. We had to become almost an academic in order to learn. So we had to call upon these brands to ask them about their story. And we did so in search of the most cult-like brands for an event. So that's where we created the gathering was an opportunity to say, we're going to go talk to hundreds of brands. And if you're one of the best, we're going to crown you. Is one of the best top cult brands in the world. So for the first couple of years, our ideology was formed by just pattern matching. All we were trying to do was to say, what are the most common similarities that we're seeing within exceptional brands that we're not seeing within mediocre brands? And our, our template was a book written decades ago by called Good to Great. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what he did. He took the top performing stock companies and compared and contrasted them. Where is their homogeneity within and heterogeneity without? And so we said, let's do that, but let's not use stock price as our metric. Let's use a new scorecard that we had to evolve around cult like status, where they weren't just successful, but they were wildly significant. They were part of our culture. People that just know them or like them, they adored them and loved them, and all these kind of metrics. And, one of the ones that we stumbled upon was what's it like to work there. Um, so there was a high correlation of being a great place to work, and it's hard to be loved externally if you're not beloved internally. And we loved that because I just saw dollar signs with that, right? Like, that's a huge exploitable asset. So if you have a mediocre brand that wants to become a cult brand, one of the other areas they have to focus on isn't just their product or their marketing, but it's their culture and their HR and their internal engagement. And that's a place that no ad agencies are playing they're not playing there because they don't usually buy media. And most ad agencies' revenue models were tied to media commissions. So we found it's sort of a white space. of So about a third of our business now doesn't even deal with customers. It deals with treating, we, we call it converting employees into evangelists. But it's super fulfilling because you, like, you're working with people that are falling in love with their jobs again. They're falling in love with their companies again. I'm actually always shocked that marketers don't spend more time on it because A, it's effective. And B, it feels good to help people do that kind of work internally with their culture. So a few years after we did the event, people were like, these stories are incredible. You should document them somehow. So then we wrote the book last. I still am on the fence about the thing. I read it and I find typos or I see things I wish I had said (laughs) differently. It's essentially a glorified white paper that was packaged to look like a book.
0: The book is called Fix, Break the Addictions That Are Killing Brands. And I love this idea that we add all these painkillers, but this idea of engagement throwing around this term like we know what it means. You guys have actually given it a definition. It's really about beating expectations, as I understand it.
1: One of the fallacies that we find is that you can't really have just the most engaged companies because engagement differs for different categories. So it's very hard to compare an American Airlines with a Tesla with a Levi's. It's kind of why we don't use that When we talk about the most cult-like brands in the world, first of all, we don't call them winners because it's not a competition. We just call them honorees. But we always try to go within categories. The first thing you have to do is you have to understand what do consumers expect for that category. So if it's something like air travel, the number one expectation is you better not crash, (laughs) right? Planes must be safe. The problem is, once that becomes the cost of entry, now it's so exceptional, planes don't really crash. Then they have to go to okay, what's the next expectation? And usually for any category, 80% or more of the expectation can be boiled into one of four things. It's not usually like 10 things or 20 things. So you look at something like airlines, you start getting pretty quickly into in-flight comfort, price value, for automotive, again, it's safety. But then it gets into things like infotainment, tech, the bells and whistles. And so you have to then decide which of those expectations are we going to compete against? And who currently owns that share? So if you're Volvo, you're going to compete in safety, right? And if you're Mercedes or BMW or Lexus, you're going to compete on engineering and automotive expertise. They're all different. If you're a Honda Odyssey minivan, you're going to compete in soccer moms. So that's where you then have to choose to say, okay, with those finite resources that we have, are we better off becoming at parity as our competitors in all four areas? Or do we double down on a particular area? And do you double down on the area that you already have a natural advantage? Or do you double down on the area where you're the biggest delta between you and the one that you're trying to to lose? It's, It's how Hyundai and Kia done such a remarkable job in the past 10 years. Coming out of the recession, those two car companies have done a better job than most understanding what places can we compete in and how do we overcome obstacles. So I think of the two things that Hyundai did, like Hyundai had a reliability problem. It was never a design issue, and it certainly was never a price issue. So the worst thing that Hyundai could do is offer employee pricing or rebates or financing deals. They were already getting credit for being good value. It's just they weren't getting credit for being good reliable. So when they create a 10-year warranty... That, to me, is marketing. That's a marketing department saying, let's take some money out of price promotion and discounting and create a warranty offering that would say, we now have the see So even if it is a lemon, you're going to get your Mm. money back for 10 years. And then they came out with this thing called the Assurance Program, which everybody's doing now. But in the last recession, when they say, why aren't people buying cars? It wasn't that I don't like the Hyundai. It wasn't that I didn't want a new car. It's that I'm worried that I'm going to lose my job in the next year. It feels irresponsible to make a big purchase right now. So they came out with the Hyundai Assurance Program. This says, if you buy an automobile and you can't make your payments, we'll take it back. And I think Hyundai that year was up 30-something percent, while the industry was down 19%. They really got at what's the core insight and what's the way that we can compete better than everybody else. And that's what we think of as, as marketing. and We just don't see enough ad agencies doing that type of problem. So.
0: You've mentioned this idea of the origin story of a brand. And, and I do believe that brands have to have that core purpose. They have to know what they're about. But you're also talking about the research function that comes with understanding the expectations of your customers. And where is your battleground? Where are you going to choose to win? Is that something that you guys spend a lot of time with your clients on? What if you have a client that doesn't want to invest in that space?
1: To as we always talk about de-risking the situation. So there are lots of clients that either for whatever reason, would prefer to trust their gut instinct. They say, I've been in this business for 50 years. Maybe I've paid for some research before. It did nothing but tell me stuff I already knew. So there's no question that there are clients that have a predisposition to be anti-research. And then there's other clients that I would argue can't make decisions without the research and there's this paralysis. On that spectrum, I think people need to challenge their beliefs and behaviors around why do I believe what I believe? And certainly coming out of COVID, I wish I could say coming out of COVID, we're still stuck in the middle of it. But it's been a big enough deal that lots of perceptions and expectations have changed. So I think even if you were a bit biased to not doing something before or if you do something once a year, it's time to hit the reset button. And maybe now might be the time to say, let's just do a quick Gut check to make sure that our customers' attitudes and beliefs and values haven't been fundamentally altered for our category. And I always like to do category research first, not brand research. And then it just gets into some methodology stuff. I'm not a PhD, we have spent a lot of time trying to align ourselves with researchers who we believe their methodology is a bit more enlightened than the traditional outbound surveys. We subscribe to the idea that customers don't know how to say or communicate what they feel. They don't do what they say. The fallacy exhibits itself in brand research all the time. We finally decided a few years ago to create our own. The most prevalent research that people were using to try to assess what they would determine their cult worthiness was Net Promoter Score. Net Promoter Score took over most boardrooms, and we weren't fans of it. We were huge fans of the ease with which it's administered. And we do subscribe to the idea that there could be one question to rule them all about your propensity to refer. That that wasn't our problem with it. Our problem with it was that if the net promoter scores went up or down and you overlaid that with sales, it wasn't actually predictive. We've seen brands where their net promoter score was increasing and yet their sales were decreasing and then vice versa. So we're like, well, what's the purpose of a metric if it's not actually predicting what you're trying to do? Mm. And then worse, it wasn't prescriptive. So if your net promoter score went from a five to an eight, You're like, why? There was no context. You just knew that it was. So then you had to start trying to reverse engineer what were all the things that we did in the past year that might have made was it the lower price? Was it better distribution? Was it our press release? So we needed something that could solve those two problems. So we created something with a firm out of Toronto called the Audience Engagement Score, which isn't as simple as the Net Promoter Score. It's not one question, but it's also not hundreds of thousands of dollars and taking six months to complete. It can usually be done in a month. It can be done for anywhere from 20 to 60 grand and it will give you something objective about how customers feel about your category, their attitudes and beliefs about your brands. And then it also helps better correlate to what the solution should be. So a creative team can now not just get the facts, but can get the commentary or the color around it to say, oh, okay, so we need to focus more on this in our messaging and in our storytelling. And it's gone great, in a perfect world, 100% of our engagements would start with an audience engagement score because that becomes the baseline. And then every year we'd be able to not just use sales, but we could use the score as a one-two punch to decide if what we're doing is actually working.
0: It seems like you guys spend a lot of think time on hard problems, even for your own company. I could tell through your writing style that you are a natural researcher and academic, pulling on stats and data, but also having a point of view. So talk about how that has infiltrated your company culture.
1: I think it's two parts. I'm naturally inquisitive. I naturally have a high BS meter. I don't get particularly excited about just a good idea. I want to have a good idea that works. When we decided to start Colt in 2010, we hired a couple of consultants to help us, and they introduced us to a methodology called Blue Ocean. I don't know if you're familiar with that. You
0: know what? Tim Williams actually talked about it.
1: Tim Williams is great. We actually hired Tim Williams a few years ago too. Completely yeah. changed our world in terms of our pricing strategies. And we eliminated the timesheet, two fantastic yeah. things that I would encourage <laughs> all of your agency listeners to do. If you're tracking timesheets, you're, you're set up for failure. And if you're not pricing the client, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. Anyway, what we liked about Blue Ocean was an idea that most marketing firms are poorly positioned or differentiated. And Blue Ocean is this idea of not going after this sea of sameness where people already are. And they use examples like Cirque du Soleil. Takes two established principles, Barnum and Bailey's circus and Broadway musicals, and creates a new entity right. called the Cirque du Soleil. Nobody knew what a Cirque du Soleil was before right. that, but it felt familiar because it had soundtracks and pageantry and theater experience like Broadway, and it had clowns and whimsy and family fun and and, and, and traveling the way that a circus does. Similarly, Uber understood renting a car and you understood taking a cab. So if you could create a thing that had the best of those worlds without the worst of those worlds, like renting a car, the worst is waiting in line and filling out the paperwork and getting screwed on the insurance. And so Colt, these consultants said, let's take traditional ad agencies and let's take traditional business consultancies and let's create something in the middle. And that's where we yeah. came up with an audience engagement firm. So it's a business consultancy, but we don't get into supply chain and finance and some of the org you know, leadership team, org structure stuff. We we focus more on the things that affect customers or staff. But then similarly with the ad agency, we want to be about creativity and fun and whimsy, but we can't just be about media and campaigns and some of the more tangential things, superficial things that we do. It has to be tethered to a remarkable product, a great value proposition, what used to be the four P's of marketing, but nowadays it's just promote, promote, promote. We were very intentional about trying to say, what do we want to be? What are those attributes? But then it also had terrifying consequences. So one of the things that ad agencies do that we hate is respond to RFPs. We said an audience engagement firm doesn't respond to RFPs. Well, that's terrifying when the industry is accustomed to saying, well, will you fill out this RFP? And we you say, I'm sorry, we're not an ad agency who don't do RFPs, that takes a lot of courage to say, yeah. are they going to call back? Yeah. The idea of eliminating timesheets or the idea of doing free thinking. A lot of ad agencies give away the the research or the branding or the strategies just so they can get the production work or they can go make the commercial. That's Mm -hmm. where they think their value is. That's actually the commodity. You can find lots of people to shoot a commercial. What you can't find is somebody to say, here's the story you need to tell, or here's the reason why you're failing.
0: This idea of Agencies becoming more like consultancies in terms of understanding the business objective resonates deeply with where we are. I can see people taking that trend, but you got way out ahead of it. We're very much a B2B agency. We understand complex distribution systems. There's really meaty problems in B2B to solve. And so, talk to me a little bit about how some of these brand principles that Colt believes in that you write about don't just apply to B2C in terms of falling in love with these brands, but maybe even are on steroids in B2B. One
1: of the biggest misses or disconnects is people that think that b2b is somehow inferior or different enough that it requires something atypical there's way too much research that already validates that whether it's a procurement-based b2b world or a sexy chanel ad from the b2c world most decisions 70 plus percent of decisions are based on emotion first and justified rationally after the fact there are a few categories, B2B, one of them. I think uh, nonprofit is one of them. I think government is one. I think post-secondary or academic is one where they create these cultures that give themselves excuses for not being awesome. We would do that we're in the ag business or we're in the construction business. We just don't do that. People want awesome anywhere. What B2B or academic or government tend to attract are higher risk-averse people. So I actually don't think the categories are that different. And I think the solutions and the playbooks have a lot more in common, whether you're selling a pair of Levi's jeans or a $3 million piece of construction. What's different is the mentality of the decision makers the more conservative the industry or the more conservative the organization, the more risk averse they are, the less enthusiasm that they display. They don't want to take personal risks. They're looking for safety. They want to be tenured. They want to get the pension. They want... So they just don't do the kinds of things that somebody that wants to change the world, they might go join an Airbnb or a startup or do something that is more accustomed. So I actually think when we go into those types of worlds, we have to have an honest assessment of how much can we affect the culture. We call it a cold brand scorecard, but it's all about a self-assessment of what are you actually trying to do? Because if you're in a culture where you're content with 3% year-over-year growth, then use that playbook because you're not going to try to become a cold brand. Versus if you have a much more bold ambition to not only be successful but to be significant, to not just make a dollar but to make a difference, and you want to try to really be a change agent – then you have to employ these other types of principles that work so well in other places. I don't like to use the broad brush strokes of saying B2B is going to be more because they're procurement or because they're closed bids or whatever. It's really big. What's the ambitions of the leadership team? And you're going to find super conservative people in B2C categories and super exciting you know, risk takers in B2B categories. That's why Colt always says we never really customize based on a category. We're not vertically or horizontally positioned based on hospitality or automotive. We are myopically focused on finding courageous leaders that are looking to do something exceptional. And if that's you, you could be a startup, you could be a nonprofit, you could be a B2C. I don't really care what your category is because our playbook applies to businesses that are trying to do something different.
0: I want to save some time to talk about your other big theme in life, which is really helping with the talent management, something so many of us are struggling with. So tell us a little bit about Communo and what inspired that idea.
1: So Cult started in 2010, and our legal name is Cult Collective. Mm -hmm. And Cult referred to our ideology. We believe that it's easy to get customers. What you should aspire to do is get Cult-like followers. And the collective referred to our operating model. One of the Models that I was quite fascinated with was the Hollywood model. Mm -hmm. If you study Hollywood from the 1920s to today, there was a turning point in the late sixties, early seventies, where it went from huge studios, which I equate to holding companies in the ad space, were owned everything, including the actors. John Wayne would work for a studio. He would only do films that were whatever it was, Paramount or MGM or whatever it was. Studios, when they were the primary source of entertainment and they put out a Gone with the Wind or a Wizard of Oz, it was a pretty good bet that there was enough pent up demand, that the movies would be seen, and that they would be money makers. When every household in America got a television, it became much harder to compete with on Sunday night, am I going to watch the Disney show at home or am I going to go to a movie theater. And so the hits and misses started becoming much more rampant and a couple of misses could bankrupt a studio. And so in the 70s and I think Star Wars is one of the first examples of an auteur where you have a director, producer, writer who says I'm going to just make this movie and there's small, scrappy, specialized teams Look at Imagine Entertainment, which is Ron Howard's company. He has a couple of dozen employees. His core competency is finding great scripts, knowing great directors, which is typically him and his business partner, and assembling great teams. So they don't need location scouts or costume design or craft services or talent agents on staff. They just need to know how to assemble them when they've got a project. And if they don't have a project, release them back out to the wild. And so we were fascinated by that. And it's what saved Hollywood. It's why now when you watch a movie, there's three minutes of "brought to you by this company, this company, this company, this company" is because it's a patchwork quilt of talent. We then also model the home building industry. Same idea: the best home builders in the country are general contractors. So the cabinet guy, the tile guy, the landscape, or the electrician aren't on staff. They are sub trades who they have preferential relationships and contracts. So we simply said, why can't that be the way the agency model works as well? Let's get really, really good at what we do. I was also jaded, if you remember, from the Oncom world, if I never wanted to go sell things because I had an underutilized tech team or web video oh, team. So I was like, I don't want to have that burden. I want to be able to do what I do best, which is find people who know how to create Colt brands and then be able to have on demand. And and Colt did that through a collective of a few dozen agencies or freelancers. And I remember in 2014, a couple of our most trusted sub-trades had to quit because they weren't making enough money. We were feeding them maybe 30 to 50% of their desired income, and they didn't have the acumen to go win enough new business or do whatever to stay busy. And we were heartbroken. We're going to lose access to these amazing people simply because they don't know how to grow their businesses better. And so we said, could we help them? And we could help them by saying, well, it's kind of weird. We have a few dozen agencies that we're working with but they're not working with each other. Like their only time that we connect is when Colt calls upon them. So like we were in the middle of the hub and they were all these spokes. We said, what if we got out of the middle? What if we just became a node like all of them and there was something else in the middle that would allow them all to connect? Then they could give each other work to stay busy so that they don't have to go back and get a corporate job. And so that's what Communo became. It was basically an app, a web tool or a mobile tool. that was a directory. It's kind of like we say if Tinder and LinkedIn had a baby, it's right. the business sense of LinkedIn, but it's the ease and convenience of Tinder. Yeah. Like, you look pretty good. Let's do something and, yeah. and let's work on something. And it saved us because now not only did the agencies that we were working with get going, but then they brought their friends and then they brought their friends. So hundreds became thousands and thousands became tens of thousands. And now it's just this wonderful sort of commune. Just bring what you do to the table. And let somebody else complement that with what they do. So it's been a really pleasant surprise. And we spun it off as its own business a few years ago. And my business partner now runs Camino full-time and I run full-time. And it's been a real pleasant surprise. So Colt still uses Camino regularly, but it's kind of fun to watch that business take on its own identity and grow up.
0: Absolutely. Really amazing benefits. Time to hire three to six days, pre-vetted talent, 0% placement fee, direct access to the talent, stuff that you can't get by hiring a recruiter, for sure.
1: In the spirit of Blue Ocean, we have traditional headhunters who are doing onesies, twosies for 20 to 30% fees or marketplaces like Fiverr, where it's millions of low cost talent trying to bid the job down to get, that's how you get $5 logos that they advertise on Fiverr. So how do you take the best of those two worlds, but avoid the worst of those two worlds? That's how it gets into what the pricing model is and what the community is and what the benefits are. So we're quite pleased with it.
0: Even Samantha has tapped into it. So thank you for that.
1: Tell me a little bit, About what's next for you, Chris? COVID has had two major impacts on my life. The first is, so this event, the gathering that we started as a way to showcase what we thought were the best and brightest brands has become a thing. It's kind of taken on a life of its own. Now it's a thousand people once a year, but it's called the gathering. (laughs) And that's a problem in a COVID world where people can't gather It usually happens every February, where we pivoted and now it's happening in April. But it used to be a thousand people descended on this castle in Banff, Canada, completely sequestered. And that was part of the experience. And so we've now just decided that there's going to be miniature gatherings in five Mm -hmm. different markets across North America next year. And part of it I'm excited about because I think People getting to Banff, and that's both expensive and inconvenient. And so this might make it a bit more accessible to people that want to go to other markets to do it. But it's going to be different. Different doesn't necessarily be bad, but different is different. And so we're spending a lot of energy right now making sure that the degree of awesomeness stays high, but the, the ability to execute it in a pandemic is possible. And then just personally, I've been in Canada for 10 years now. And COVID is one of those accelerants that causes everybody to kind of reevaluate different life decisions and whatnot. So, my family and I decided we're actually going to move back to the States okay. and uh, do a first man on Mars to take most of Colt's businesses in the States anyway, but it's been kind of nice servicing it from Canada because there's the cost savings. We can just be cheaper because the Canadian dollar is less expensive. But we've gotten to a stage of our business where we think we need to amplify our boots on the ground that are in the U.S. So the next 12 months, we'll see us making a much more overt push to having different offices throughout the U.S. with the hope of eventually going global. A lot of our Colt-Brand principles apply most in super-commoditized marketplaces. It's when everything's kind of the same that you start to look for other ways to compete besides just being the cheapest. That's not always the case in Africa or in some other countries, but we're looking at Brazil as an example, or certainly English-speaking Europe as places where they're suffering from the same problems of too many choices and too much commoditized offerings. So we think that we might have something to offer there. So that's kind of where we're trying to go next.
0: So cool, I'm excited for you. We'll get back to the rest of the interview in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Symantle. I happen to know a thing or two about them because I'm one of the owners. Symantle is an industrial consumer marketing firm with an obsessive focus on customer experience. We not only execute killer marketing campaigns, but we help organizations align around goals, audiences, messages, channels, and tactics to create more than campaigns, but programs that align to business strategies. Samantha has 40 years experience crafting positive, engaging customer experiences at every point in the consumer journey. And if you like what you hear on this podcast, head to semantle.com slash blog for more content. You'll find articles, tips and tricks, do-it-yourself tools, webinars, and more to help you keep learning and growing right along with us. final thoughts, what is a piece of advice or core truth that you live by or that you would leave us with?
1: Somebody told me once that no amount of success will ever compensate for failure in the home. And so I've always prioritized, you know, I'm I'm, on my 24th anniversary this year. I got three great kids. I would much rather my identity be, he was a great dad. The work is fun but work is work. In the spirit of substantive and superficial, which we've been talking a lot about today, my most substantive impact on this planet will be how I raise these boys and, and, and treat my wife. So I would encourage everybody to make sure they don't get so wrapped up in their work that they forget the other part of your life. your work to not earn a living, but to make a life. And so Absolutely. Don't, don't get so carried away. Sometimes we get a little bit too caught up in our own accolades and things like that. I remember vividly when I was at Home Depot, I got some employee of the year award and I was on the stage and 5,000 employees were clapping and it was quite, it was a great professional accomplishment. And that night, my 18 month old could learn to walk. My wife had taught and he waddles up to me saying, dad, dad. And I was like that, that moment brought me more joy than getting the trophy at the work thing.
0: I've been thinking a lot about 2021 and the message I want to send our team, and it really is about family. This space has given us such a place to be more with family, and that is certainly one of our values as well. Last question for you. What's a question that you're wrestling with right now that we can pass along to our listeners for them to be thinking about?
1: One of the things I hope that comes out of COVID, as most companies have substantially downsized, is that as they rebuild, how do marketing and HR become better bedfellows? And HR has become more like the legal department which I think is a huge miss. They should not be about compliance and risk mitigation. They should be more like the marketing department. I've seen marketing and IT partner up in interesting ways. I'd love to see marketing and HR band together to build better companies, to think differently about how they rehire. And Certainly, some of that is contingent work and hybrid models and agency partnerships. And What are you choosing to hire versus outsource? But some of it too is what, what kind of business do you want to be remembered by? and what kind of significance do you want to have. I think we're two islands right now and I'm trying to find ways to bridge them
0: together. I've taken copious notes on all the things we should be connecting (coughs) on. And again, I can't thank you enough for joining me for this hour. Isn't Chris awesome? I love his stories and the lessons he pulls from some of the great marketing successes and failures of our day. It's clear his lessons coming up in the business formed his thoughts about what it takes to create powerful engagement. After all, if you think about John Deere Green or Home Depot Orange, these sorts of brands have iconic, memorable, owned brand attributes, but they also have the more intangible elements of brand too. You just know in your gut what these brands stand for. You can find Chris in two places. Look him up at cultideas.com or communo.com or simply search his book on Amazon or download it like I did on Audible. We'll link these profiles on our website at marketingsweats.com or you can find us at semantle.com where we promote the podcast and tell a little more about each interviewee. Thanks again for tuning in this season. On our next episode, I'll be talking to an interesting storytelling teacher, Esther Choi, someone I found as I was simply researching what it means to tell your personal story. Esther will share how the concept of personal storytelling first came into light for her and how she now teaches others on the importance of the concept. Again, please subscribe to our show and give me a review. I sure do appreciate them. We'll talk soon, marketers.